Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, here we go. Take two. We started, we, I thought we were live a minute ago and, and we weren't, but hey, I, welcome to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pistolka. I'm excited for our guest today. We have Eric Sarver here from the law offices of Eric M. Sarver. We're going to be talking about employment law challenges and answers. And uh, Eric, welcome for being, or thank you for being here today. Damon, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. As I said, when we were not live and I meant it and I mean it now too, it's really great to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. Now, I tell you what, and then this is for people that are using StreamYard out there because there was an annoying habit in StreamYard where it was not mirroring your camera. So if you look right on on uh, in the real world, you look left in the the video world, they have fixed that. Go into your settings and change the mirror setting because Eric asked me about it and I hadn't bothered to look at it. So thank you, Eric, for that tech tip and helping us get this straightened out. My pleasure. You know, I'm not one. It's usually, um, I was telling you before, I get accolades for my legal analysis, acumen, legal skills, but usually the text is not my strong point, but um, maybe I'm picking up things here and there over the course of my life. So I'm happy to yes. see that assistance. Yes. Well, that was a great, great help today. So Eric, I've, I've got to, I've got to always like to start out. Tell us a little bit about your background, your background in, in, in law and employment law and what really drew you into it. Yeah, sure thing, Damon. Happy to, to, to oblige there. <clears throat> well, so, you know, I was born and raised in New York. I was born in Brooklyn and my parents moved to Long Island when I was a kid. So I grew up in uh, a suburb of New York and um, I always kind of had this you know, interest in you know, in, in debating and discussion and just in advocacy um, as a kid. And I found it very, like, fascinating to me. And, um, you know, when I got older, I knew I wanted to be an attorney. I just had this hunch when I was even a young boy. And, I, you know, I saw it on TV and I saw some relatives who did it for a living. But when I got to college and law school and I saw what types of law you have that you can practice, employment law really spoke to me, Damon, because it's very much like a human drama type of situation. You know, it's an area of law that I think really makes an impact on people's lives. You know, we spend so much time either as an employer building our company, building our brand, to work hard, to employ people, or on the flip side, being an employee somewhere. So I was drawn to also that the human drama, but also just to the um, the, the the married issues that come up. You know, I like how it's like a, it's really involves a lot of strategy to figure out and the best way to comply with the law or defend against a lawsuit. So I just, I was sort of, I think, drawn into it for that that human interest component. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's, that's cool. So going through your career in employment law, yes. what is one of the strangest cases that, that stick out in your mind <laughs> that you can talk? I mean, that in generality, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think how much time we have here. No, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, you know, a couple and trying to keep it as vague as possible, but yeah, yeah. that, you know, 
and that's, it goes back away, right? Because I started practicing employment law <clears throat> in, in 19, uh, January 1999 and worked a couple of small firms, started my practice in 2001. So I had, I think, a couple of strange cases. One that really kind of jumped out at me was when um, it was a company and they had a bunch of employees, they were paying them, you know, over time, not keeping the proper records. And then like one of them actually, who was a, a plaintiff in the case, um, ended up having like mob connection ties and a coworker had to report that. Um, and so the person who reported it was getting terminated for a different reason, but it, it was like, it involved the possible whistleblower situation because the person with yeah. the mob connection, and it's the, yeah. I guess the, I don't want to say informal mob, like the, um, sort of like a, I don't want to say the small mob, but like a, like a, a side mob, yeah. not like a big, like mafia, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it involved like whistleblower issues. Um, it involved, you know, like it got a possible RICO claim that I don't really handle. But they, so it just, mm -hmm. um, and the employer was kind of caught in the middle of all this, didn't know going into it. It actually came out in the midst of discovery. So the case settled um, before trial, but God, that was just such a crazy, yeah. Oh yeah. We didn't even talk about Far that much because, turn. you know, I try to keep it like, um, but that was one of my probably wildest cases. It came on and started out as a wage and hour issue and quickly went in other directions so yeah yeah mm. on and i'm sure that as you've you now do you first of all do you normally um represent companies or are employees in in your practice yeah that's a good question thank you for asking that so i can clarify um so i i spent many years <clears throat> representing the employees exclusively from, I'd say, 1999 to 2000, maybe 12 or so, about 10 years ago, or 2013. Uh -huh. And then in 2013, I kind of changed my practice a bit to the point where now um, I represent mostly the employer. I'd say I represent the employer about 90% of the time. I represent mm -hmm. a handful of employees, usually in very high-stakes negotiations. So it's not quite litigation. Of course, uh -huh. I check for any kind of conflicts check. Um, yeah. You say executives who either are negotiating their compensation or they're perhaps negotiating severance, or they have a possible claim and they want to explore enhanced severance instead of that claim. Um, and okay. lastly, if say executive might be accused of wrongdoing and they think they're being railroaded, I can defend them in keeping their job. So yeah. but mostly represent the, okay. the company, the management side. Yeah. Okay, cool. And that's, and that I'm, I'm sure when you're doing it that way, you, mm -hmm. you kind of get both sides and it helps you on, uh, to for for defending either side too because you can kind of keep the perspective. Yes, absolutely true. You know, when I talk with employment counsel, um, let's say like right now I have a couple of cases that are I'm representing the employer on, so I'm defending the employer. And you know, when I talk to opposing counsel, often I can bring I can either see the direction they're going in, like I can kind of read between the lines mm -hmm. and tell, you know, do they think they have a strong case or do they think they don't have a strong case? Because I remember using certain techniques based on, you know, if the facts were on my side or the law was on my side or if neither was on my side. Um, although I tried to select my cases, you know, very, you know, very um, exclusively. But I I often, you know, I find I defend, as I mentioned, companies could be in federal court, state court, mediation, arbitration. Like what I do is I try to get into the mind of the, of the plaintiff's side attorney. And so, you know, I oftentimes even will tell them, you know, I represent some employees as well. I have for many years. And I understand that when you're representing someone, this is a big concern. And so my client's perspective is this. So why don't we talk about, I think it kind of, it, um, it puts them at ease. 
it, it, it doesn't present it as if, you know, we're mortal enemies here. We're just two professionals, you know, doing our jobs. And, you know, I've been where they are. And I'm just trying to say that, you know, I, I can tell when a case might be going south for these reasons. or, or So it's, it's been helpful. Um, you know, and it's mm -hmm. also, whether it's defense or compliance, there's a lot of compliance work also, which is, you know, the pre, right? that's sort of the proactive side. That's the um, helping business owners to follow all the different federal, state, and municipal laws that govern everything from wages and hours to overtime, pay to discrimination. Because if I can help them to follow the law and then have those policies in writing and communicate with their employees, and you know, I can probably spend much less time with them than I do in litigation. Not that I don't love my clients, but I'd rather see them spend less money on compliance and then hire me back for other business law needs or employee handbooks than, you know, be in the trenches with them for you know, eight months, a year, two years, however long it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause litigation, employee litigation can take an awful long time. Sure can. And it really has an impact on everything from the sale of a business, you know, to due diligence in that process to let's say attracting investors, you know, if you're a startup company and you're looking yeah. to raise money and you've got, you know, um, uh, a large ratio suit against you that maybe could have been resolved or a wage and hour suit because the employer didn't follow the uh, the tip pooling or overtime or commission rules um, mm -hmm. be very problematic. So yeah, I'm happy to help you know, my clients. If you're in New York, you know, and even in New Jersey to some extent, you know, I can help with the um, all that stuff. Yeah, and when you talk about that, that's one of the things that a lot of business owners, mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't say neglect, but don't really understand that any outstanding litigation going into trying to sell a business, raise money. There's there's several instances where you want to just take care of that kind of stuff ahead of time so you're not you're, you because you really can't get it done with that kind of thing because if it's open-ended in any way that it's going to kill a lot of your efforts to do that because um, of the risk it creates so as you you've mentioned a couple things here um and we're going to talk about non-competes too sure. but <clears throat> there have been a tremendous amount of changes in the state laws across the United States dealing with wage and hour, especially mm. in contractor kind of situations and other things. And you talk about compliance. Mm -hmm. What do you see are the are the toughest compliance issues your your clients are trying to uh, to to do correctly now? What, you know, what are some of the toughest issues that they're they're dealing with in compliance? In terms of wage and hour overtime situations or in just, terms of their, just mm -hmm. overall, what are the compliance mm -hmm. issues that you get brought to you the most? I would say, you know, Damon, that believe it or not, one of the ones that was very, very prevalent in all 2020 and 2021 that's still even prevalent today has to do with the COVID-19 rules and regulations and protocols. You know, you still have a lot of outstanding state laws and they, they vary from laws around, you know, yeah. the, a contagious infectious contagious disease policies in place to health and safety standards. Um, I get called in a lot for also issues around like paid leave. And a lot of states are changing their paid leave laws, um, you know, paid family leave, paid sick leave, paid grievance leave, right? And then of course, so I'm getting called in a lot of that. And there's quarantine leave that's now, you know, less of an issue, but <clears throat> has been uh, a big thing for my clients. Um, so definitely number one, all the COVID related laws, including, laws around existing laws around that like, compliance with the ADA, right? With the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, but now, you know, with COVID, you have people that are claiming 
that their long COVID is a disability, and it is in fact. And how do you accommodate that? Um, you know, how do you accommodate wow. people that you can't come back to the office when, because of their and a condition they have that might not normally be deemed a disability, but that condition plus COVID could be very deadly. So you stop people with asthma wow. who are not necessarily deemed, you know, <clears throat> disabled having this ADA claim. Um, so definitely a lot of that. And then I guess the third issue has to do with like, discrimination uh, compliance like, with the laws around, you know, not being able to uh, mandate arbitration anymore for sexual harassment claims or, or gender discrimination. I see a lot of clients that get tripped up because they have arbitration claims now still in their employee uh, policies and contracts. Um, and then maybe lastly is just the fact that, you know, with like compliance with different non-compete laws in different states. You know, I know we'll get to that later, but you've got states now saying that, you know, if you have a minimum salary threshold, you need that to have a non-compete. Or you can't have it with hourly workers or you can't have it with anyone in California. So really that all of that comes into play, especially with the remote workforce, work from home. You know, you've got people now working all across the country and employers have to know how do you comply? What's the compliance on all those issues in each state that their workers work? Yeah. And we'll ask some questions about that. You went sure. back and you said something sure. here a while back about uh, arbitration um, not being not being able to do mandatory arbitration. Explain that a little bit more, because that's a that sounds like sure. a pretty <clears throat> a pretty prominent change that we need to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah, sure thing. Happy to explain that. So, you know, um, in the last few years, I'd say probably in the heels of the Me Too movement, there's been a lot of push towards um, laws. A lot of states actually have had laws enacted, which basically preclude an employer from requ requiring that their employees, you know, take a dispute around sexual harassment, you know, sexual discrimination, or gender discrimination into an, um, a mandatory arbitration setting. So usually an, uh, an arbitration clause, it might be in an initial employment agreement, it might be in a severance agreement in fact, but it basically says that, you know, you know, if the parties essentially have a dispute and they can't resolve it amicably, <clears throat> that instead of going to court, they agreed to an arbitration process, maybe with the AAA, the American Arbitration mm -hmm. Association, or with an uh, employment discrimination, with like jams or end dispute. So, a lot of laws are coming up in different states, and the states, a lot of states are saying, no, you can't force people to arbitrate when it comes to sexual harassment, nor can you force them to have like a non-disclosure around those issues. The idea is that these are issues of public concern, and they want people not to be silenced, and they want to be you know, have a voice to. Um, so this has been picking up a lot in different states. And even, in fact, there's a bipartisan bill, you know, going through the federal government and Congress this year, which is said to repeal um, arbitration as a mandatory clause. Um, it's called really the FAIR Act. And so, like, so this is something that we're seeing a lot more of now. What happens is that employers don't realize that and they use, a lot of times people write, reuse their templates. They think, oh, oh, why yeah. right? I've had this employment contract, I'm using it for 20 years now. So when I hire, you know, Susan or Fred, I'll give them this to sign. But I always encourage my clients who work with me, you know, let's meet every year, let's update our employment agreements update, you know, our um, non-solicitation clauses and our restrictive covenants and our employee handbooks. So, yeah. but that's a big issue now, you know, really you're finding that, um, and it's the challenge is that an employee may want to uh, go to court and the employer tried to say, no, you signed this agreement to arbitrate. And so the courts are starting to invalidate those clauses and saying you can proceed to court, you know, as is. 
So now this is the question, and you may not be able to answer it because it could be different situations. But if I have something like that in an employment agreement, does that make the whole employment agreement uh, not valid anymore? If I have one like that and they throw it out and say, well, that that's not right in the employment agreement. We can't go with that. Does that mean that everything else has gone on to that employment agreement? Yes, good thinking, good question. Usually not, um, because usually okay. when people draft contracts, they have different sort of miscellaneous, the miscellaneous provisions clauses. Like, and when they say things like, you know, like they say, you know, this is a full uh, contract in of itself, and they, they might say, you know, that this is a, the headings are not in any particular order. But usually there's a, clause, a part that talks about how if any one clause or provision of this contract is ever, you know, struck down, void, nullified, yep. that, right, that the others, you know, the other clauses. Okay. In full force and effect as a fully so the short answer is you know um the only time that might happen let's say if it's, if an attorney you know drafted a contract yeah. and didn't have that but honestly i've been doing this for a very long time and every contract i've seen you know has that good clause, so yeah i was just curious as you were saying yeah. that i was like well no, i hope that good, doesn't throw the whole thing out so. it's a good question you know and honestly you know people have tried to make that argument um although one could be creative in arguing one could argue that like that the contract may have been coerced, you know, pressured that um, the whole contract in of itself was one of adhesion, right? Where the people didn't really fully have the same level of bargaining power. And they might be able to point to the arbitration clause as an example, like, hey, I was forced into this and forced into these other clauses as well. But that's kind of, I think, a, a very high standard of proof, you know, uphill burden to show. And if the contract language says in, you know, paragraph 16 that, if this is um, if the arbitration clause is void or any clause is void, the rest stands. So usually a court would say no, it's taking out the arbitration clause and the rest stands as is. Okay. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. You you brought up another thing too. Now now when we talk about that, yeah. and so so in those type of situations where you can't um, <clears throat> have employees to agree to arbitration, mm -hmm. basically doesn't mean you can't not use arbitration doesn't preclude you from using arbitration but it doesn't force anyone into using arbitration good point and it's usually in regard to certain issues right <clears throat> usually regard regarding discrimination or wage and hour overtime so if you let's say have an employee and there's disagreement about let's say you know their um parting pay or their commissions you're allowed to use arbitration in those settings it's it's the, uh -huh. the cases that are a public concern like you know, overtime violations, sexual assault, sexual harassment in the workplace, and discrimination. But you're absolutely right, you know, and it's an excellent point because um, my, my challenge often is, <clears throat> you know, to make sure that the language in the contract makes it clear the parties can voluntarily consent if they so choose. And how do you make it clear that, you know, each side was even in that, that one side wasn't sort of de facto, right, forced into this. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, mm -hmm. you know, so I often, you know, I'll include clauses in my contracts with my clients that encourage the company, it encourages the employee to have this contract reviewed by an attorney. You know, it used to be, I noticed the trend years yeah. ago, right? I know maybe you've seen this too, Damon, I know you do a lot of work with businesses. I feel like there was a trend years ago to try to get employees to sign agreements without an attorney. They thought an attorney was going to push back and it caused problems. But now, you know, there's a big push to... Um, an encouraging effect of employees to have an attorney that way they can't claim that they're forced into any of the clauses, you know, or the contract. Yeah. So. yeah. And I think that that's a great point. It's a great, that, that is a really, really good point because if you don't encourage them to have somebody review an attorney, review it, mm 
Yes. And, and, and getting that third opinion, um, it, you know, at least you're making your best attempt for them to get the advice that they need. Right. And that's, Absolutely. that's really good. So now, now we move into a couple other things because you, you brought up a, another topic, but, but the, the remote workers, mm. now this is, this is, man, this is a can of worms that I just don't, I don't know how the heck employees are doing because you can be sitting there today in New York city with people in all other States around mm-hmm. the globe mm-hmm. that are, that are, you know, wage employees, not, not yes. just contractors. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, how, what yeah. do you see an employer is really, because it's just like, it's mind boggling to me think that I've got, I'm now I've got employees in 27 states when they were all in the city around me mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, four years ago. Yeah, I've seen this a lot. You know, a lot of companies, you know, my, my clients are industry agnostic. So they're everything from technology and advertising yep. to restaurants, you know, to doctor's offices to now some of my clients can't go remote, right? <clears throat> if they're a restaurant, let's say. They're mostly on the premises, or if they're a construction mm-hmm. company that, that can, you know constructs things. But um, for my clients in let's say marketing, advertisement, you know, business consulting, like um, it is really a can of worms. That's a great way to describe it, Dave. And it's actually a bit of a Pandora's box, if you will. Um, yeah. What I'm seeing is that you know I think like a lot of employers rejoice in a sense. They said, "Oh my God, this is great. We we have we we all were remote during the pandemic. We got our technology up to speed. We got Zoom." We got a live stream with the mirror now and the camera. No, I'm just kidding. Get joking. Yeah. But, you know, we have all this stuff going on. We can do this. And they said, we're going to get rid of our office lease, save money on the commercial lease, save money on yeah. property and all that stuff. The challenge is that, like, you know, a lot of them didn't realize that, you know, you have to follow the laws that govern where the employee lives and or works. So if they work in, let's say, I'm, I'll take an example. I'm in New York City. as my office is located, right? So an employee lives in Connecticut and works in the office three days a week in New York. Right, the employee is bound by New York law, right? Yeah. Let's say the employee is remote. Let's say they're remote, though they're not hybrid. They work entirely where they live in Connecticut. If they live and work there, <clears throat> then you have to follow Connecticut's laws around everything from you know what is the minimum salary threshold to be an exempt employee, right? To not have to pay overtime, and under that state's law, or one of the factors. What are the laws around non-competes? If I mentioned, I know I come back to that a few times. It's an important topic. Are you now working with an employee in a state where they can't give a non-compete because their salary is too low by that state's threshold? So you really have to know all these different laws around everything from paid leave. You know, I've seen Florida companies where they hire New York people and they say, oh, you don't get, um, you know, paid maternity leave because we're in Florida. Well, it's not true. You know, the person's in New York, it's a whole different ballgame. So I'm really Mm -hmm. seeing a need for companies to get with an employment lawyer you know, get with an HR company and really get into compliance. Otherwise, what they think they're saving in office rent, you know, they're going to pay in penalties, you know, fines, lawsuits. Yeah. Um, from so it's, it's it could be it could be a real a wild success if done right correctly, or a total mess if done wrong. That's why I come in to try to help companies follow those laws. Yeah, I get one last question that was brought up to me uh, a, a, a while ago about that. Have you seen employers hit with workers' compensation claims with home-based remote workers? It's funny you say that. Um, I haven't seen it personally with any clients yet, but I've certainly been reading about this a lot and seeing it in different cases that um, it actually very much is 
a potential liability to be concerned about because you know you have an employee let's say works for you and they're if they're forced to be remote right if it's if it's your telling them you know like employee yeah. you know x you are to work at home from now on um let's say like they trip over some wires that they set up because they have their computer now with a router yeah. and extra wireless then yes you can be on the hook for that i've heard stories and colleagues where they said hey guess what we've got you know someone now and they, they broke the shoulder yeah. working from home tripped over their own you know and it's a question of well, what is that the workplace? And it's sort of, it is in a sense, it's the, it's the new yeah. workplace. So you definitely have to be aware of that and, and mindful. And, um, you know, it's just more of the reason. Now, the interesting there too is that how do you make that place statement safe, right? If you're in a workforce, if you're in an office, you have people come in and you know, make sure that there's, you know, the carpet's laid out flat, any wires are up against the wall. Mm-hmm. You, you really don't want to be <clears throat> knocking on employees' doors, you know, and saying inspection and yeah. where you're, it's kind of inappropriate. But that's an issue. It's um, you know, this, this new work world is like a um, an issue where there's a lot of compliance issues that come up. And you know, we have workers' comp and employment insurance for different states. Um, I'm I'm yeah. seeing and hearing it all. I'm seeing and hearing it all. Yeah, I bet, I bet, because it, it's it's opened a lot. I mean, it, and for some businesses, it's really been a blessing because they can, you know, you can hire talent outside of your area, which is. Mm-hmm. I mean, is extremely valuable for some of these places, um, and and then for some of the employers, employees as well, because mm-hmm. I can be living in Montana, working a remote job that's in you know Silicon Valley or New York City, where you're mm-hmm. at, where the yeah. wages are much higher for, for a similar position because mm-hmm. of the cost of living, and mm-hmm. I can be making out much better if I'm if I'm in one of those places. So, yeah. The interesting stuff. So mm-hmm. as you um, mm-hmm. as you look at this, we talked about there's there's two other subjects and, and non-compete is one of them. We're going to talk sure. about the non-competes because I think that is that's fascinating. The other mm-hmm. one that I've seen <clears throat> is the changes in contractor slash W-2 employee categorization or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much is that hitting your your clients or has everybody pretty much said, you know, I can only use contractors very limited or or what are some of the changes you've seen that have made it challenging to stay compliant? Yeah, that actually is a great question. And to answer your question, unfortunately, a lot of my clients are going to get very, very hard <clears throat> on this front when it comes to um, independent contractors and employees, right? Misclassification. You know, I say that like, like there have actually been different changes. The law, I mean, there are certain criteria, Damon, certain standards that have been in place for a long time that different state departments of labor use, the IRS uses to consider if you are mm-hmm. uh, an employer or an independent contractor. And usually the factors have to do with like who has been the main, you know, the control, who's, who has the autonomy, direction and control over the person's um, logistics, their schedule, their finances, right? Who's calling mm-hmm. the shots here, so to speak. And so, these criteria have been pretty, pretty uh, fixed for some time, but yeah. now what's happening is like you know that certain states are certain passing certain laws that say that you know if you are a gig a gig economy worker in like this field, right? Like I know this is you know moving towards you know drivers and such, um, that you are in a newer wide. They're broadening the class of people who the states, some states are considering to be employees. So California, for example, is mm-hmm. you know broadening to say if you work in this type of position. Right, you are must be W two employee, and so the bigger companies, Lyft, you know, Uber, right, you know, um, drive companies, are really pushing back against some of these laws. I'm seeing laws in Rhode Island and Massachusetts that are either passing or are on the about to be passed, 
that are again trying to just like broaden the net and who's an employee. Even if those workers might have their own choice, they may have their own jobs. They might be able yeah. to drive for competition. Maybe they drive Uber twice a month, one month, and six times the next. You know. So I've seen a lot of clients of mine who are very confused because they don't know where their workers stand. And also we're seeing much higher levels of enforcement. I think the departments of labor in various states, you know, lost, this is my theory, they lost revenue a lot in 2020 and 2021. And uh, they weren't out there doing lots of investigations. They weren't doing inspections. Yeah. You know, fewer people working means fewer claims. And the low hanging fruit is to do a random audit, you know, on companies or do audit and say, hey, this company, you know, the store has workers, but I think there should be employees. So it's a big issue. Um, requires a lot yeah. of you know, a lot of guidance, I think, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I know we've seen clients uh, that that have you know going through their records. They've had those challenges. Um, so now, when we come back to the to the hot topic of of non competes, non competes, yes, and and you do a lot of work with non competes, mm -hmm. and and let's talk about. Um, some of the changes that have affected employers around non-competes. And then also you, you help employers still get some of the benefits of non that were offered by non-competes, but in other ways. So let's, first of all, right. let's just talk about some of the changes around non-compete agreements for, uh, employees that, that you've seen that are happening. Sure, Damon. Sure thing. And by the way, I realize how much this impacts what you do at Exit Your Way as well, because, right, you have clients, you need to make sure they're in compliance before you can help them to, you know, turn around and sell a business. So it's a great topic for anyone out there who might be a business owner, an employer. Um, yeah, but non-competes, big topic these days, right? Um, yeah. <clears throat> something I've spoken about at webinars and presentations and happy to speak about it again. So what I'm seeing is a few things, right? One, I think you asked me the question, what changes are we seeing in the world of non-competes in the states? Yeah. Well, okay. So first off, you know, um, a number of states have passed sort of minimum salary threshold to say that if an employee is in working in that state, I believe it's like, uh, let's see, I know that um, um, Illinois has, I think, right? Illinois, um, I think um, Washington, other states, I believe, have where the employee has to be making a certain minimum salary, like 75000 in some states, 100000 in other states, in order to be subject to a non-compete agreement. So if they're not making that and you try to give the employee a non-compete, that can be considered null and void. And when that employee goes to work with competition and you say, hey, not so fast, I'm going to send you a cease and desist letter, I'll send you a non-compete and I'm going to sue you, you might not have a leg to stand on. So that's one change is states that have minimum salary threshold. Minimum right? salary, okay. But number two, yeah. I think some states are, are changing the scope of saying if you're an um an hourly worker, right? Someone who's, you know, subject to overtime, mm -hmm. not exempt professionally, then you cannot be given a non-compete in those states. I know that New York and New Jersey, Maryland are all looking at, you know, like some uh, different classification of positions that say certain positions, you know, professional exempt, maybe non-compete. You know, non-professional administrative worker uh, making less than a certain threshold salary, non-competes may soon be unenforceable. So that's the second area, right? You've got the salary threshold or the type of worker they are. Then you've got states like, uh, you know, California um, that are altogether banning non-competes saying if you, except for, I think, a very few, I believe it's an exception for the medical field where, you know, medical research is such a highly competitive field, I believe, that, you know, they don't want to lose people to um, working on things. So they try to, it's an incentive to keep mm -hmm. them stay at certain hospitals. 
but that's how often does that come up, you know, in the public and private employment world, right? Um, yeah. But mostly these states have these laws that say, you know, if you have a non-compete, you it's not valid. So my so the thing is, if employers are really dead set on oh, and lastly, the amount of time that the courts are willing to impo- uh, enforce a non-compete has been shrinking from. You know, when I started practicing in 1999, it was two years, then 18 months, then 12 months. Now it's about six to 12 months that you can, and by, by that I mean six to 12 months after the date of termination that they can be uh, barred from working for the competition or starting their own competition. Yeah. Well, that's good to know too. Yeah. So, you know, you've got like all these different, you know, changes in the law. Um, and then, of course, right, so you know, people that might want to, have a non-compete, but make sure that state allows it. You know, um, if you have remote employees, especially, and they're remote in California, and you're in New York, look at California law that governs. Um, yeah. What I'm seeing though is that you know between that and the court striking down non-competes more left and right, um, it makes sometimes makes sense to find other ways, as you alluded to, Damon, to protect your company. Right. So, let's say you have you know you can have a very strong. It's called a non-solicitation clause. That's mainly you know like don't take our clients. Don't take our mm-hmm. employees, don't take our business, right? You can have clauses that talk about you know, protecting proprietary information, right, from being taken and used somewhere elsewhere um, at, at another company. So, you know, if someone's competing and you find out that they took some of your business, your that you're confidential, you know, trade secrets or marketing, that can be a reason or grounds to seek equitable relief, maybe to get them to stop using that, right, that proprietary information, or to sue them for money damages, or both. Um, and also just, you know, like you can have clauses that talk about uh, working in a place that when you work here, you know, you devote all of your time, effort, energy to the company. It's sort of a no conflict of interest, no conflicting obligations type of clause. So it's mm-hmm. not quite a non-compete, but you can read between the lines that if someone's working for the direct competition, their attention divided and there might be a conflict of interest. A conf- so, so there are different ways without using the phrase non-compete to have those clauses and um, you know, to have protections rather that non-competes provide without, you know, all the headaches of following the right, the changes in the law and, and thinking that you're protected and then you're not. You know, a lot of companies think I'm safe now because there's non-compete. <clears throat> and then the employee, you know, spins off of their own startup with their, you know, five other workers and mm-hmm. they realize that they're in, let's say, a state where, you know, the non-compete's not valid. Or they were fired, and some states say if they were fired, that the non-compete now is not valid, which is a very new thing. It used to be, didn't matter wow. how you parted ways. Right? I need to look again and see what shape that was. I was reading about this, but um, I'm blanking on the exact state. But I remember that was a big thing that it used to be. You know, the point oh, where yeah. it didn't matter, right? If you were fired, quit, resign, mutual, yeah. simultaneous parting of ways. That it was all about you know protecting the comp- the the uh, competitive trade secrets and the competition. So yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really happy wow. to get into that. Wow. This it's is great exactly. stuff about it. Yeah. This is great stuff. I mean, especially when you look at if I'm in a state where if you're non competes, if you're using it in a place where you can use it, you're using it appropriately. Yes. Um, but if you fired somebody, <clears throat> that might be the person that you don't want to, <laughs> to go mm-hmm. out and use that stuff. So mm-hmm. it not being applicable if they were fired would be a, a really big deal. Yes. Um, and these other ways, the non-solicitation of, you know, customers, employees, and, and using the trade secrets. That's another thing that's that's a good mm-hmm. workaround that can help people do this. Right. Um, the one thing that we see every time in a business deal, every time, uh-huh. yeah, without a doubt. The owners have a non-compete. 
There's mm -hmm. always the buyers always expect a non-compete for for the owner from sure. the sale of the business. Yes. Now, I have to feel that that's a pretty appropriate use of a non-compete agreement. Yes. Okay. And along those lines, Damon, you know, the laws around employers, employees, it usually looks to you in the question of, you know, like, are you, is the non-compete creating like a hardship, economic or impact on livelihood? And that issue comes up much more, you know, with say, you know, your standard worker, middle management employee, um, you know, who now is let go from a job, has no income and can't work for people in the industry. But when you're, let's say, the owner who's selling the company for, you know, say a seven or eight figure, yeah. right, or nine figure number, yeah. um, right, and, and you don't want, and you want the value to go to the buyer, not to have the seller then just open up a competition using all their, all the goodwill that they cultivated and all the, you know, different you know, trade secrets they learned. Um, absolutely. I think that's a very appropriate use of non-compete. And I also yeah. don't want to give the impression that there's never a good time for non-competes. There are certainly situations we have some very competitive industries out there with very, you know, like um, AI being used or hyper certain, yeah. certain super, super high tech, you know, issues that if, and they're very competitive. And if someone goes from company A to company B with this new, let's say, hot wireless information, they can destroy the company they worked at. So you do want to have some, uh, there is a place for them. It's just that, yeah. that they used to be, I think, overly used way too broadly and, I think that, you know, <clears throat> one way to do this is to uh, be more selective. Another thing you can have, too, is you can have um, like a paid non-compete. I, I see this a lot where you agree to pay the employee. I see this now with bigger companies. The big companies can afford this, right? They say, you've got a 12-month non-compete. I'm going to pay you for, let's say, nine of those 12 months, right? You know, pay you like your, what your salary was. So mm -hmm. basically, the person can't claim economic hardship because they're getting paid. Now they might say, I was I was slowed down from, you know, finding a position that I could have been at for the next 20 years, what's gonna happen when this runs out? But that really goes a long way. And people that's like yeah. challenge non compete because they go, oh great, I can take my time. You know, or it goes either six months, nine months, or until you find a new job, whatever comes first. That's not competitive. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one way in the companies that I'd ran in the past for uh, mm -hmm. the investment owners. We always, if we use a non-compete, it always was, it's basically like saying you're going to, you're getting paid for that amount of time. Right. And right. and that's, right. that's how we got around it. But that's, it's, it's been a, a number of years since we've, we've had to have that situation. The, um, okay. Yeah. Non-compete. So, yeah. And we talked about the COVID. What other things are what other things are changing now that you see mm -hmm. people dealing with? Because we talked about COVID, we talked mm -hmm. about the non-competes, remote workers, the 1099 mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing other compliance issues? Like because mm -hmm. you talk about one thing that was pretty interesting, and I think yeah. a lot of people deal with is the is the enforcement. Uh, are you seeing that overall, like the the tax or the these employment compliance are getting more aggressive because of could, could be that tax revenues are down. I am, you know, I I do I see it more with the Department of Labor and with the Workers Compensation Board in different states, um, mainly just because I don't really do tax law, so I usually refer yeah. my clients to one of my yeah. colleagues might be say a tax lawyer or and a CPA combined. Um, I do so. Yeah. I usually tax issues come up, but 
if it's actual real IRS issue, I'm not going to refer to like Yvonne Court, let's say, you know, or Jack Solomon um, out here in New York. In New York. But what mm -hmm. I say is that um, I am seeing a much more aggressive, you know, uh, push. Not only am I seeing the Department of Labor come at people with random audits and with, you know, taking complaints very seriously and, and just kind of looking into industries to see if there's any wrongdoing, I'm actually seeing the Department of Labor pick up where they left off two, three years ago before the pandemic. I mean, some really, yeah. oh yes, I've had three clients in the last um, six months, wait, eight months, whatever, no, same, since, since, what's this now, September? Since February, yeah. seven months, where um, they they came to me and one is like a client I've had for like four years now, right? Or five years. So I represented him in this situation, the Department of Labor in 2018 and 19. And, and then the, the trail kind of went blank on the issues of alleged unpaid minimum wage overtime and supposed mm -hmm. obstruction, which was not even what happened, but um, which is very fact specific. They claimed that he obstructed an audit or an investigate inquiry and it wasn't true. And we had to, but the facts are, they, 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 they sort of disappeared in 2019. And then COVID hit in March, 2020. And the DOL Department of Labor got swamped with, as you can imagine, unemployment insurance claims, you know, like, like unemployment, yeah. um, you know, um, all kinds of issues with tax left and right. They lost workers, some people quit, some got sick, and some took off. So they just lost sight of these things. They're actually coming back to them with full force and gusto. And it's really unbelievable. You think there'd be some sort of a touch limitations, right? You know, almost like in private yeah. right? You know, if you abandon your case, you can be you can be dismissed for that, you know, abandonment of prosecution. But the Department of Labor is not bound by that. So I've seen situations where um, they come wow. back. Yeah, I've had at least three clients now, a couple of them where, you know, and I remember saying, you're writing to me in April and you're writing to my client, you know, certified mail. You're you're assessing penalties for, you know, $18,000. And you're basing on this investigation that I'm looking back at emails and letters and we, we haven't talked in, you know, three years. And then so it's, it's almost comical when they say, your response is due by April 22nd. And it's like, hold on here. You know, you've had two and a half years. My clients had two weeks. No, no, no. So we usually get, you know, more time to investigate and respond. But um, so I mentioned that, you know, if you're a company out there, and I can only really speak for New York a lot, but if you're, I, I think a lot of states are seeing this. My colleagues in other states, you know, in, in Florida, in, mm. in Illinois, you know, in Ohio are saying, you know, what's going on here? So if you're a company and you had an issue with the Department of Labor and, and it's been on the, on the, on the, sort of the, the back burner, you know, on the shelf, um, don't be so sure it's over yet. And I hate to say that in like a scary way, you know, like a scary movie, you know, but um, just be diligent. Make sure, you know, you're following the laws and having yeah. a counsel to help you out with these things. Yeah. That yeah. is really something because it's a scary thought to think that you got it done and and <clears throat> come back and it come back, comes back to haunt you. Let's just say the expression, no news is good news. Not true with the Department of Labor or the Workers' Compensation Board, you know, for most states. Yeah. No news is, you know is they got too busy and now they're coming back, you know, to you. And um, yeah. And the clients, you know, the, my clients, the employer, business owners, understandably pretty upset because, you know, they're thinking, Oh like, yeah. I got to go back and revisit this. I don't even remember these, you know, like I'm, who, who worked there even now? Who's, who's still around the records from 2018? You know, are you kidding me? You know, I'm a small business. I'm, you know, yeah. a computer system that got, uh, got, got trashed. Now we have a new service and I don't know if I had the, you know, the schedules for, you know, 11 workers in 2020. So it's, yeah. it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because I think that 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're used to in business. If no no news for a long time is is, is everything's okay, and it's not any it's not in that case. So that's that's a good right. thing to know. All right. Well, Eric, hmm. it's been awesome talking to you. And then now now you people, I'm, I want to I want to also tell people you have you're on Talk Radio NYC with a show. Uh, what's your show called? So we make sure everybody knows what it is. Sure. <clears throat> My show is called Employment Law Today. In yeah. fact, I had an excellent guest this week and a half ago talked about all these similar issues, Damon Pasolka. Damon was on my show. Um, I have the show airs on Talk Radio NYC. Uh, it airs on internet radio, that's the audio, and then it airs on Facebook Live, usually, at the station. Every Tuesday night from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I have guests talk about some of those novel issues and challenges, such as the ones we're talking about tonight, perfect example, um, mm-hmm. that employers and business owners face today. So we talk about everything from inflation to the great, to the great resignation to the four-day work week. Then we talk about mm, tax issues and, and employee morale, employee culture. Um, so I have guests each week, and you know we have a great exchange. It's an hour-long show. It also does uh, stream live on, or rather streams on, um, in, I should say, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and um, Amazon Music as well. Awesome. So tune in Tuesday awesome. at 5 p.m., yes. And that's the thing I think really is awesome about what you're doing, Eric, because you're you're helping to educate business professionals about employment law and, mm-hmm. and the other issues around it. And that's I, I felt fortunate to be on your show. And I, th- I really enjoy your show from the standpoint of that, the education that you're giving the giving the employers so they can they can figure some of this out and then just really understand, um, make informed decisions you know, understand these things better so they can make informed decisions and, and figure out when it's time to talk to a lawyer or when it's time to talk to another professional, because a lot of times the, the business owners are, are left guessing and your educational efforts are really helping that. So thanks so much for that. You're welcome. Now, yes. well, how can people get a hold of you if they want to talk to you? Because you you practice law in New York and New Jersey, correct? I'm in New York. I'm of counsel of New Jersey firms, so I can certainly practice there. I'm in okay. the waving in process, but that's why I mentioned New Jersey. But so I'm in New York, and for all intents and purposes, I can do New Jersey with my co-counsel out there. So very good. So yes, yeah, so New York, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And um, how do people get a hold of me? You're asking, right? Yes. Great question. Well, so you can find me. Um, my website is www.sarver. S is in Sam. A R V is in Victor. E R hyphen law. Lw.com. Um, the law of Eric M. Sauber. And um, you can find me, my email is EMS, so it's like Eric Mitchell Sauber, EMS at sauberlawfirm.com, same spelling. Okay. And they can also call me, you know, best number is 917-930-8684. I'm happy to talk with you. You know, if you have an issue of compliance, employment, business law contracts, what have you, you know, um, I have a, 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 a big uh, soft spot in my heart for the small and medium business owner in various industries. That's how you can reach me, Damon. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, we got, we, we glossed over your background a little bit. I mean, you've been helping oh, people sure. for over 20 years mm-hmm. doing this. I mean, you, you, you've seen a lot, you've been able to help a lot of people. And I really, I really appreciate you stopping by today, Eric, and, and, and helping us. And, and for those of you that maybe joined us late, may have uh, just got out, we got Eric Sarver here from uh, uh, Sarver Law Group and, 
practicing in New York, but he talked a lot about non-competes. We talked about remote workers and Mm -hmm. some of your challenges with that. We talked about 1099. We even got into uh, arbitration because I, we just that that came up in, in what you were saying, but a lot of good stuff in here for people that are wondering about compliance and other things. So thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us today, Eric. My pleasure, Damon. A pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, great to be here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure's ours. Thanks everyone for listening. We will be back again next week with another awesome guest on the faces of business. So keep the questions coming and we'll keep the answers going as well. Have a great evening, everyone. Have a great night.